Oh, gosh. Okay, thank you. Close. Okay, um, then thank you very much for doing this interview uh, on a beautiful fall day. We have fresh air, finally. Yeah. <laughs> Great day to take oh, yeah. a walk. Uh, let's start at the beginning. Where and when were you born? Well, I was uh, born in 1946, October 25th. Uh, and uh, my 75th birthday is coming up, so I'm very excited. I, I just found out that my favorite football team, the 49ers, was also started, as well as the National Football League, 1946. So it was a very uh, auspicious year. Yes, in the beginning, and uh, uh, and uh, and being born in Oakland was really um, uh, a good experience, partly because um, uh, we were very poor, so we lived in black poor black and Latino neighborhoods. Um, however, when I, when I went to elementary school, junior high, but mostly when in elementary school, um, uh, we were one of the very few Asian families there. So I, I, I remember growing up all throughout uh, elementary, junior high and high school that I, I had almost no or, or few Asian teachers, uh, no administrators that I got to see and um, and then my experience of people of color were always in um, as staff, never as administrators or teacher. And uh, and I and I and I remember thinking, wow, either we're not capable, uh, which I think early on I kept getting that message because everybody I saw on television and and in the media and. Uh, I, in the world were in positions of leadership were all white people. And so uh, uh, when I think about early on in terms of my own enculturation as, as a young man, I would probably say that uh, uh, I, th th there's, a, there's a duality, I think, and I think it's really important to look at. And that is that um, like most people of color, I started substituting white images for my own so that I, I for a long time, uh, I remember way into my 30s when, when one of my girlfriends asked me who was black, asked me to get a Valentine's card with her picture and my picture on it. And I remember for the very first time, I realized I had never seen a birthday card, a graduation card, a, a, uh, a grief card, a lovely a Valentine card uh, with either one of our images on it. And I, and I think also it, it became very poignant to me when I went to Hong Kong and I was looking, um, I tell people, well, well, how do you think I felt? And people will say, well, uh, you got to see all these Asian people, which you normally wouldn't get to see. And I said, well, that's not what made me cry, even though it was very emotional for me. I said, I looked up at a billboard and I saw an Asian person. And I realized at the age of 38, I had never seen a billboard, nor did I even know I was missing. And what I started to do as well as with the process with the cards, uh, with the holiday cards and greeting cards, was that I had substituted white faces for mine. And I, and I think that, uh, and I don't even think that white people even knew we were missing, to be honest with you. And are even that they predominated almost every facet of our world, our images, dolls, comic books, heroes, leaders, everything, or even that 
for uh, up to a good part of my life. Um, we had, I, I had never seen a president of the United States of color, nor anyone in his cabinet, or a woman. And and uh, and I came to very unconsciously start to accept that white males were smarter, more uh, uh, knowledgeable, better leaders, uh, stronger leaders, more athletic leaders, and great lovers, because everything I saw were 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 the leads in every romantic movie were always white males. And I started also didn't realize till quite later too that almost every image that I saw of Asians were of you know servitude or a white person, you know, like Charlie Chan and all these different servants were all in servitude um, and never athletic, never romantic, never in leadership. Lots of martial artists, right? Well, at that time, no. Uh, it wasn't until uh, the, the, the 60s, the mid-60s, that did Bruce Lee come on to it. Up to that point, martial arts films weren't very popular um, and people didn't watch them at all. So Bruce Lee was one of the very first ones. However, like Muhammad Ali uh, or Cassius Clay, uh, he, he profoundly changed the way people saw Asian folks. And then of course that film, Kung Fu, which was with David Carradine, which was supposed to be Bruce Lee, and he was substituted you know, from that. And I remember uh, there was part of a biopic about Bruce Lee and that he was uh, Cato in, in, in that, uh, uh, I forget the name of that, that film. Anyway, uh, and the producer said, could he not take off his mask because we don't want him to look Asian. <laughs> and, and, the, and the director said, but he is Asian. But it was just really what Bruce Lee went through. And, he, and like Muhammad Ali, he started to speak out. And uh, uh, I remember uh, not too long ago, about four years ago, students at um, uh, the University of Seattle wanted to erect a uh, statue of Bruce Lee and the board of directors. And this is what they actually said is, who is Bruce Lee? And all the students of color said, it's so funny, you expect us to know all the white people that have statues, but you don't even know one of the one of the most famous Asian people all around the world is Bruce Lee, not only as a as a uh, martial arts, but also because of his intelligence and of his philosophy and, and the books that he wrote and how he transformed martial arts and the way of living. And they had no idea. And to this day, there still is no statue of Bruce Lee on, on the end. And most people don't know that not only did he, was he born here in the United States, which they think he was born in Hong Kong, even though he was born here and they took him back to Hong Kong, but that also he had graduated the University of Seattle in philosophy. Mm. Was very, very intelligent. And I think people didn't know what to do with him, what to make good sense of him. Uh, and then also most people don't know that a good part of the martial arts organizations were run by white people and Asians were kept over here, very segregated in Chinatown and things like this. And so it was, it was very unheard of to have someone be outspoken or even have their own martial arts place where he was one of the very first to integrate with blacks. In, yeah. in, your, in your talk to Edmonds College that I saw online, you mentioned that your father was an immigrant from- Yeah, both of my mom and my dad were born in Chinatown, well, not Chinatown, but born in China uh, in what they call Toisan, which is very near Canton. And um, uh, my mom came over, I guess, probably about uh, 
10 or 11 and my mom, my father came over about eight or nine years old. And, and the story is quite profound because it, it actually very much affected my life because my father was detained um, on uh, Angel Island. And that's where they processed a lot of the Chinese immigrants. And, um, and so they had a lot of question about my father's citizenship. And um, uh, so he was withheld there uh, quite a long time. But one of the stories is that um, my father barely spoke English. Um, and so there's two stories that I think I share about there is that, that when he went into the kitchen, I mean, to the, to the place to have a, a dinner, that um, uh, they had no uh, chopsticks there at all. And so he had never eaten with a fork. And then plus there was bread and butter and spaghetti. And, and he had just never seen those kind of things. And so, and he was very hungry. And so he put a, um, one of the, the uh, biscuits into his, his pocket. And as he was walking up the road to these log cabin places, uh, the, the guard ran up and beat him and took the biscuit from him. And my father was just crying, you know, and he was only like eight or nine years old. And then, but during the time he was being processed, he saw a young uh, Chinese girl, uh, being processed, only she was stripped naked. And my father never quite knew why. And she was just crying and covering herself. And then uh, in those days at, at, at these um, cabins, uh, they, the bathrooms were always located in a separate cabin. So he had to go across. And then it was very dark at night. And, and, uh, and he came across the young girl that who had, who had been stripped. And she had hung herself. And so what my father really picked up during that time was how foreign this country was, but also um, how particularly Chinese could be so mistreated. And uh, so he got very scared. And then later on, they changed my father's name from Lei Huwa to uh, uh, Richard Lee. And so the, the Lei was changed to, to uh, Lee, which was anglicized. And then my father was given a totally anglicized name. And the, and the whole um, uh, rationalization was because uh, they felt that, that Lei Hua was too difficult to pronounce. And, and most people don't know that I'm a nationally known phoneticist. And I could tell you Lei Hua is a lot more easier to pronounce than Richard. But what the truth of it really is, is that it was anglicized. And anything other than English is always difficult for this country. And anybody with a Cantonese accent is, seems very, very foreign uh, to white people in this country from the very onset. However, if you happen to be French or English or Australian, then they'll really make the attempt to not only be fascinated by how your name sounds, but how beautiful it sounds and the willingness to take the time to learn your name. So it's a very, you know, I, I learned very early on, uh, uh, it, 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 it was just one more statement again, that if you're white, you have privileges, if you have whites, you're white, there are ways that you are treated differently. And the consequences for your getting angry or speaking up are very different than for a person of color. And particularly if you happen to be Chinese. Mm -hmm. um, just to finish up with your birth, you're a Scorpio. And I think of Scorpio people as having deep passions that sometimes take a while to come up to the surface. Um, very intense people. Does that apply to you at all? Well, I have six houses in Scorpio. <laughs> and, and I was looking at astrology, she said that uh, 
it was it was very good because in a way it balanced me out. I think that um, uh, I, well, there's two areas I think that are very important that I'm also Chinese and I am a Scorpio. Well, you mean it's, six planets in, in Scorpio, not six houses, right? Yes, yeah, so six planets, right. Yeah. And, 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 but there, there are two, there's a duality to it. And part of it is, you know, we're very much like, uh-oh. However, my father, you know, he was manlier and everything. It froze. Even though my mother in 19... Wait, wait. This is freezing. I can't hear you. I'm I'm, I'm muted. That's why. So oh. when it when it takes me off, it mutes me automatically. Oh, okay. So so as I was saying that in 1985, my mother was murdered, shot five times in the head, by a former student of ours, and I was a teacher at the time. And I think that what was very difficult for me, and, and, and I wrote about this in my, my life story is coming out this year called River of Jade, in which I talked about not being able to get angry. And um, I, I, and there are two, there are two emotions that are very profound in the Asian culture, and that's both grief and anger. And both in our cultures are private. Whereas in, in the Western culture, it's very public. And I was in a men's group that was, I was the only person of color in the group. And I remembered once getting angry at somebody and someone said, oh, come on, really get angry. And I said, I am really getting angry. And then I looked at him and I said, I see, oh, you want me to get angry like a white person would get angry. And I said, what you don't understand is that this is really angry when I said it with such a cadence to this person that I did not like what he said, that you thought I should be screaming. But I said, that's how white people would do it. But what you haven't studied is how Asian people get angry. And we do it by the emotions that are shown on our face. We do it by the cadence of our voices. And it was then that one moment that I started my own Asian men's group for to help Asian men be able to feel that the way they expressed anger was appropriate. And that all these stereotypes that they kept coming up against to become more white were in fact actually robbing themselves of really admiring and honoring those parts of themselves that were very Asian, that there was something lacking in them. There was a lack of appreciation for the way they expressed themselves, a lack of knowledge of the way and what it meant when they expressed their, their emotions in a certain way. And so hence, I remembered when I was going along, I, was, I didn't realize that when I created the group to deal with anger, racism and leadership, that the American Psychological Association honored me for having the only Asian men's group in the United States to work in these kind of areas. And, and there was quite a few things that we did. And I remember I had a, a white um, supervisor and he was very much uh, like Daniel Ellensburg and a number of other folks. 
and Gordon Clay, who we were all actually, by the way, in the same counseling guild, uh, except I was only there with one or two other people of color. And everyone else out of the 40 people were all white. And, uh, uh, and so they were very curious as to what I was doing. In fact, most of the time, my supervisor was uh, recommending against some of the techniques that I was using. Uh, for instance, I had food that we had. We'd stop and we would eat and we would talk. It was done in my home in which I shared my family with them. I shared pictures and who I was. Um, I, I shared a lot of biographical uh, stories about myself as a Chinese American man with each other. We invited uh, parents and their siblings to the group once a year, what we called an acknowledgement ceremony. Uh, we went on retreats in which I had them do the retreats and I also joined them. And I remember my, my supervisor was like, what the hell are you doing? And he would say, you know, it's unethical. It's, it's something that's not done. And, and I remember he was shocked when I said to him, who made those rules up? Because it surely wasn't a person of color. And so he said, okay, do what you want to do. But at the end of maybe about four or five years, um, he finally said to me, started asking me questions because he was so taken by all these different techniques that I was using. And, and by that time I had moved out of the men's guild, out of this men's group, because I didn't feel like it was useful to me. And also at the same time, I, I, like I confronted Robert Bly, I felt it did not deal with the issues of racism, nor did it meet the needs of people of color or men of color particularly that most of the archetypes that they use were all European archetypes. And that I felt like they were not relevant, nor were they very, uh, emo they weren't relevant and they weren't accurate in terms of those archetypes being used for people of color. And, uh, but I, I felt like I was coming up against, you know, the, the, the wave of where they were headed. And most of the time I would say things and, and the response oftentimes was, was quiet. And I remembered facing off Robert Bly uh, uh, at this 2000, you know, person men's conference. And I, and I stood up and I said, how come you don't have, other than a black drummer, you don't have people of color. And then on top of that, he's international. Uh, he doesn't even understand what racism is in terms of the United States. Why don't you ever focus in on racism? And this is exactly what he said to me. Uh, there's no need to, it's never come up. And I looked at him and I said, well, it just did. But the truth of it really is, uh, Robert, is that it has been in front of you for as long as I know, because haven't you ever noticed how few people of color there are here? Do you know that today there are 26 men of color here because I'm here, because I brought them, and that they were scared out of their minds to come with 1,500 and something uh, uh, white men that are here, and there's not one single workshop that deals with the issues that are relevant to our lives. And like the women's movement, which didn't deal also with racism towards when a movement of color, it's exactly what's going on here. And that, that when you stand up and you tell this audience that when you were 12 years old, that your father, you know, met, you know, connected with you to tell you about all the opportunities you could have in life. I said, that is not what my father said to me. My father was very careful, like most fathers of color, is to tell me to be careful in a world that was white, to be watching out for white people that look just like you, because I could be fired, I could be labeled, I could be beaten, I could be killed. And, uh, and so it's so funny because, you know, people kept thinking, well, you're the model minority. 
you know, and that's why maybe why people are so shocked about what's happening today. But in, in fact, the only time people trot out that label model minority is to put down other people of color. So why can't you people be like the Asian people? Why can't you people go to college? But if you were to ask people, why do, why do we put it such a priority to go to college? Because this is exactly what my father said to us. Look at the way these white people treat us. So the only way we could get back at them is to have an education and show them. But I remembered in Stolen Ground, my, my film on racism towards Asian Americans, one of the Chinese men who said, so Michael, you went to college, you got straight A's to show white people. Did you get what you wanted? And then he just looked and he said something which I'll never forget. What he said is, or did you come, or did you become just a chink with straight A's to them? And if you ask Asian people, really ask them, what's it like to be out in white corporate America? They could easily tell you there's a glass ceiling. Oh, they just love you when you don't say anything that's negative or contrary. You're wonderful team players. But when you come up with that promotion, you're never assertive enough. And then what they do to also keep you down is they go to black people, why can't you be more like those people? And then when they look at us, they go, why? I'm so glad you people are not like those black people. And, and when we look at it, we see when, when black people are speaking up with a louder voice, telling the truth, then that's the consequences they get labeled. So it was damned if you do and damned if you don't. And I think that that, and, and, and white people don't really ever ask us, nor are they curious and, and, so we're used against each other, Blacks and Asians. And, and Blacks, people don't know, you know, that most of the beatings by of Asian people have been by Black folks. And people don't know the tremendous anguish in the Black community with Asians with the belief that the Blacks worked so hard for civil rights and we got all the rewards, which in fact isn't always true because we did get jobs but the greatest benefactor of affirmative action are white women, not, not people of color. And, and so women are considered safer, even safer than people of color. And so that's, that's how they get in to have, you know, say we, we really promote affirmative action. And so my, I remember, and then so when I keynoted the American Psychological Association as an Asian man, this is, these are things that are really critical to me, why I was so critical of the men's movement and why I created my own Asian men's group is because I remembered I keynoted there and someone came up and said, that was one of the most incredible keynotes our organization has ever had. I want you to know, Manoir, that as I was listening to you with tears and, and phenomenal amount of admiration, I did not see you as a Chinese therapist. I saw you as a white therapist. <laughs> that's and, a compliment. <laughs> and that's what I said to you. I said, I think you think that that's a compliment. But in fact, uh, it's insulting but it's understandable because I have no discernible accent. I know exactly the type of words to say. I know exactly how to write my resume. And for the longest time, I made sure that I wore no clothing that was Asian. And nor was I ever encouraged by my advice, graduate advisor to wear anything that was Asian, to bring up my culture, and of which I did you know, when I became a diversity trainer and filmmaker. I finally said, what the hell? I am Asian. I am not gonna be an Asian man wearing a suit. 
I'm not going to be an Asian man with no accent. I'm not going to be an Asian man who doesn't bring up his culture. And even the name of my company and even the model, the, the, um, uh, uh, the name of it, the, uh, mother, logo, the, logo. the logo we use is Buddhist eyes. And someone said, why don't you use, make one that's more international? I said, why should I? I'm Chinese and I'm Asian and I'm Buddhist. And uh, that is who I am. And I'm tired of hiding it. And I'm tired of having all those little hands all around the world. And I said, each of us needs to bring on our own culture. And by the way, I'm longing for a white person to tell me what their culture is, because then it makes me, me think that all white people who do not show their culture, that they're just, they're the only Americans. And, that's and that's like, yeah, just like say, for instance, Donald Trump. I could just ask you, Gail, since you do men's work, uh, you study men's work, do you know Donald Trump's European heritage? Uh, German, and which he doesn't like to talk about. So he had some immigrant German father, grandfather, something come over. And that's all I know. Yeah. And along with that, and by the way, he never once told the American people. And the only reason why it came up, and by the way, not one single word was ever made of it during the entire presidential campaign or even during his, his four years. But along with that, what's interesting is how preoccupied he became on Barack Obama's or any person of color's ethnicity. And, and, and it, but I'll even make another example, for instance. How many of your constituents know your European heritage? They don't. How many of ever... Come on. Come on, Zoom. Come on. Coming back. So what were we, oh, you froze again. Um, you said how many of my constituents know my background? Well, actually, people often ask me if I'm Eurasian. Yeah. So so in other words, they're not really asking you. They hope they're wondering if you have a little so they're interested in the personal color side, but not necessarily the white. And when you write, no. Okay, you're moving again. I can hear you again. Um, okay, so you, you, where we left off is you said they're not really interested in what if they ask if I'm Eurasian? Are you white side? No, I think they're more interested in the Asian side because it's more yeah. interesting. Yeah, and, and so I want you to think about that. And then when I tell people, I said that uh, Barack Obama's mother's uh, ethnicity is what? White. And she's Swedish. And most people, I don't know. And yet she said it in Newsweek. It was in his book. It just goes, it goes away. Same thing with Hillary Clinton, Al Gore. And it goes on and on and on and on. You know, and I was telling people that what became very clear to me uh, uh, growing up was that not only was I a, a man, but I was an Asian man. And uh, uh, so I, I got all this throughout my entire life, even today. 
you speak such good English. Where did you learn it from? <laughs> uh, oh my God, Lenoir, you're a credit to your people. Uh, and uh, and all, all these little things that I often say to white people, how come you never got asked those? And every single time that I'm asked those, and I want you to notice that I didn't laugh, was that it's amusing to white people, but it's not amusing to me because it was a reminder that I was an outsider. And I think that's why when the question came up is, is about the anti-Asian violence, when did it ever stop? When did, in actually in a way, when did the anti-human being part ever end? It's like we were saw as less than human beings. So, so all of that, there, there was a hallmark uh, uh, thing that was on TV during the, the, as the Western, okay? This guy comes in on his horse and the guy goes, hey, welcome stranger. Uh, what are you doing in town? He says, well, I think I'm just gonna be passing through. And he goes, well, you know, if you're looking for a place, there's a widow down the end of the, the, there she's looking for a place to get somebody to rent out. And by the way, if you need a job, I got a job here for you here, here in the, in the store. And then I thought to myself, wow, how, how welcoming the West was. But then I thought, what if that was a person of color? And all of that, from the onset of this country, I want people to think about. So this double whammy of, and it, and it hasn't really ended. So that oftentimes when I did workshops, I remember I went in one time and I was just sitting there and it was, it was like about three or 400 people. And the woman said, oh God, it's gonna be an Asian speaker. I bet he's gonna be really boring and probably unemotional. But when I was a therapist, a, uh, a couple came in and they turned right around and they said, we want somebody who's emotional. And, 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 and I remember the director of, 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 psych, psychology, of psychiatry at Kaiser told this story, okay, one day, and he, he burst into tears that a couple walked out with the very same comment. And I remember a white woman stood up and said, let's hurry, okay? Let's what? I didn't get that. Two minutes left. I'm not sure what's happening today. Uh, <laughs> the the last I heard is a white woman said, "Let's." And she said. It's only two minutes left. Only two minutes left. Oh, just be. And I, right in the middle, he he was crying, and everybody was frozen. And then I just looked at her and I said, "You're right. It's about time we deal with this. It's about time." Mm -hmm. And then he just cried, and we hugged, and the whole audience applauded, and she was very embarrassed. But I wondered if she would have done that if it were a white male. Right. Right. Um, so to me, those are some major differences in the way we move in the world. Yes. I know that in your work, you really emphasize that to get to the heart of racism, we need to talk to each other about how we feel about it, how it makes it makes us feel that we do active listening where we really learn about each other and 
focus on how does that make you feel? Tell me. Well, well one of the things I want, I want to first say is, is that I don't know how many people say what you just said, that a good part of the communication, which we learned in our generation did too, was active listening. And I said, uh, uh, well, first of all, is there's a problem with that. In that is I have no idea what you actually hear or even what you do with it. The other second part, which I think is why we're stuck today with Me Too and Black Lives Matter and how to talk to people who are different. Like someone said, I like it the way it used to be. In other words, before you people came. So it could be any minority underrepresented group. And I said, well, the problem is, is because you've always been in places of leadership. I think it's very difficult for you now when people of color get into leadership, when they are in the workplace and now you're having to deal with them. And so it's not just active listening as it also is, what type of questions do you ask so that you can hear the answers to? And then if I were to tell you, how do you respond to it? You see, I think that's the bigger problem. So how do you respond when someone says, you know something, Gail? you are really racist and deaf to, to diversity issues. In fact, I felt like you made me feel invisible the entire time of this interview. And then what I often say to people is, so what would you say here? I and would say, tell me more about that. Yeah, tell me more about what? About how you, how I, what I said added to your feelings of not being respected. Good. Now, what most people would say is this, so there are a couple of things that you might want to add in there. How I, as a white woman, listen to you as a Chinese American man, which is, by the way, for whites, they rarely ever use ethnicities. They, they just, we just talk to each other as human beings, which to me is the crux because I don't feel like I'm being seen in that way or, or as an equal, but rather, you know, you leave that part out, which is critical to me when I bring it up. No more different than when a woman says something and a man avoids saying as a woman, what I heard you say was to me as a man. So we leave it all out. We just, we just make it neutral, which then bypasses my anger. The other one, which I think with, with people often use when I share something like this, they're either two or three different things. They either get defensive, they blame me, I get attacked. There's a sense of denial or they simply make it really simple. Gee, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. And I apologize. Now, the problem with that is, which this happens a lot, is apologize for what? Sorry about what? I have no idea. And when you ask a lot of people is, you know, the number one, when I worked with corporate America, uh, what they said was the number one thing they were most afraid of was being called a racist or a sexist, and they had no idea what to do with it. And I want you to think about, Gail, as you say this as a woman, or maybe even having done this work, is um, I want you to think about when was the last time you heard a white male say that about sexism, racism? How many models you saw out in the world where men were apologizing for their racism and sexism and being very specific as to what it is they did and then wanting to do something about it? Rare. Yeah. When I have an audience of thousands of people, I said, please raise your hand if it's a woman that you remember a man pointing out sexism before you had to. As people of color, when was the first time you read last time you remember a white person pointing out racism before you did? And almost none. And so it rarely happens. It rarely happens in history that you actually see it. 
And even today, when you watch people being called on it, look at Cuomo, look at Bill Cosby, all the denial, uh, and, and Trump, all these 20, 30 people, all with the same MO and totally in denial. And so when you see that, what, what, you, what you discover is, and what men discover, and I, you know, the joke in corporate America is you rarely ever hear a male apologize or even admit to it. And so also someone once said, when a, a white male in corporate America doesn't know something, they'll make up something rather than admit that they don't know. And, and it was very funny because the only time I've ever remembered someone appreciating someone said, I don't know, has always been a woman. I have, and by the way, when I worked in corporate America, the women said to me, we came saying, I don't know, and I'll find out the answer. But how the men saw us was weak, unprepared, and lacking in leadership. So we learned to lie just like them. Mm. Yes. And so it was very fascinating how that is still very pervasive, even, even today. And so today, when I, when I think about the men's movement, to be really honest with you, and Gordon Clay and Daniel Ellenberg and a number of people, you know, I've commented on it, is that, is that I know that there are men who do the men's work. But to be really honest with you, given the environment that I live in today, I'm just wondering, where the hell are you? Given all the injustices that I see going on today, I rarely see a white male stand up and say something. Whether it be in sports, when women are talking about the lack of equal pay, when I, when I see the, the voting injustices that are so blatant, when, when, I, when I see that the voting on gender issues is so blatant, when, when Trump lied about the tapes on the bus and not one single white male who was in the room who said, why would you want the shithole countries to come? Our, you know, our, and then said, I didn't say that on the bus. And then they played the recording and he called his friends and said, did I say something wrong? Then he came back the next day and said, that wasn't me. And not one single white male in that meeting acknowledged that he said what he did. I don't remember, I, I wasn't paying attention. And so for me, it's like something that uh, um, uh, Tim Wise once said is, is uh, we're told not to trust people of color and he said, oh, but almost all the major crimes in America, injustices are done by white males. And yet they're not considered suspicious, terrorists, terrorists, you know, like drug dealers, et cetera. You know, so, so it's, but it, it always seems to be, that's because they control the media, but also they control the media. So with all the images you see is that the person you're supposed to be mostly afraid of is, is a person of color. And, and so for me, the double whammy exists and I'm still waiting for the men's movement to deal with that, to deal with speaking up, not just about for men and men's issues, but also around the issues for men speaking up for other men of color and bringing up the issue and owning up to the fear of about it. I recently did one where I had Asians and blacks talking about their fears and racist stereotypes of each other to finally get it out in the open for men to talk to each other about it. And that big breakthrough could really be so helpful for that to happen. Whereas I find the men's movement silent about this. And Black Lives Matter is wonderful and easy to put up a, a big old placard. And by the way, if you go to any Black Lives Matter or, or uh, movement that you watch or protest in America today, I guarantee you, if you look in the, the group, that's all the people that are protesting, you will not see one single speaker asking anybody in the audience to turn 
to somebody who does not look like them and say hello and start a conversation. They literally stand next to each other with no conversation at all. And so for me, I also looking for the Black Lives Matter to be supporting Asian, Latino, Muslims, Middle Eastern folks, First Nation people to be where, so where are they? And, and with all the murders and kidnappings and disappearances of, of, of Indian women, where are the voices from the men's movement? Where are the voices from white males on this? It's almost as it doesn't exist, but yet we'll kill ourselves. We'll actually just fall over ourselves for that, that young woman who, 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 you know, recently was missing and was, you know, in, in camping. White woman, yeah. A white woman. And, and, but, but not if it happens to be a person of color. And, and, and so it's so glaring. And you know, I don't hear one single person going, let's talk about this. That's a really good point. And by the way, here I've in- heard people talking about it a lot. It's on the news. I've, I've heard it a lot. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but what was interesting about it in channel two, there was this guy, I forget his name, um, and uh, Summer, uh, Summer Hill or something like this. And he was, he was suspended for bringing it up. And the reason why he did was because his daughter is black, part black. And he was suspended for bringing it up. And so when you think about it, when it gets brought up, but the idea then is, is the news media willing to look at the time of energy that they put into for a white and to own up to that part? It's not just to um, publicize it, but what are they willing to do about it? And as a community, I can guarantee you from one week from now, it will not be on the news or anywhere. And by the way, even today, you no longer hear about the Mexican children uh, in cages anymore. I haven't heard one mingle mention of it, and it's a democratic uh, uh, administration. I haven't heard one single word about it. And so that makes me wonder, like, what happened? You know, what happened to our, our commitment to want to work with them? And the outrageness. I remember they, they said after uh, two years of putting those children in cages, and they said, that the psychological trauma, and do you know what the, the, the Homeland Security said? We hadn't taken into consideration the psychological damage it would cause. Oh, come on. That's ridiculous. And, uh, and then, then there was one, one Republican uh, senator said, well, they're just lucky. It's better conditions. In fact, the toilet water is probably better water than they get. Melania Trump said that too. Yeah. And I, and I, and I wanted to say is, well, why don't you drink it then? Why don't I take one of your grandchildren and put him in those cages and have that child drink the toilet water? Oh, I see. It's it's okay for those children, but not for your children. And for those, and that outrage for me is because the head people are white males. And so it, it I see it daily. And that's what angers me so much is that this anguish builds up in our community. And it's why I think the men's movement still does not have even 25% of the men's movement or even 10% being men of color, it still lacks that. Right. I know that there's lip service. Do we we need to do more outreach? Right. I know that the American Psychological Association Men's Division says that, and Mankind Project has special groups where they outreach to men of diverse backgrounds. So, I mean, I I think there's at least lip service to it. Yeah, and and and, and um, but unfortunately, that when they're there is if those issues actually will be brought up, not just representation. And, and that's what I said to, to Robert Bly. I said, I know you, you have thought about wanting it. 
but there's not one single workshop that's on it. And then it's only maybe once in a while, you'll have a little theme and then that's it. And that's why I started my own men's movement with men of color. So they could really get a chance to talk and, and, and have a chance as well as in my own men's group to do something like this. But, it, but, it, but it's happening for all these years, it's still not existing. Why did you join a men's group at first? And then could you say more about approaches you took with your men of color group, how it would be different than working with Anglos? Well, I, I joined the men's group because I, as therapist, I was working with this young, this man and uh, he was white and he had shown phenomenal improvement. And I knew it wasn't because of me. And he said, well, because I'm in a men's group. And he said, I'm graduating. And so I said, oh, I'd like to come. And so when he came, that's when I met a, a um, my supervisor, future supervisor, Gary Huber. And, uh, I, and then I joined his men's group. And I was there for about two years, three years. But then I, I just, that's when I started to feel what was missing. But I thought he was a very good uh, therapist. And, and it dealt with a lot of good issues with fathers and things like this. But it didn't necessarily deal with my ethnic background. And so, and he was very gutsy. He, you know, he did a lot of very emotional work. And which, I, which really helped me out a lot, which I didn't know it was not a lot of the other groups were going as far as he was going. And so when I started my own men's group, I, I, I looked at all the areas that I thought were missing in a sense of family, community, um, a sense of uh, wanting to know each person more personally, having the men do things together with each other, um, going celebrating their birthdays, their anniversaries, um, having them talk about their relationships at home, and then also what was interesting was that in my Asian men's group, every, every man there was with a white partner, including myself, and then dealing with interracial issues. And that's what my first two or three years doing my Asian men's group was about, was dealing with their relationships, which is also about expressing anger. And so I explored for the very first time on the very few therapists exploring how to help Asian men express anger. And so one, there were several things I did. Some of, the, some of them were pretty outrageous. And some one I remember one time is I had all the men pile up on top of one man. And uh, not to hurt him, but just piled up on top of him. And he had to scream to get us to get off. At first he goes, would you please get off? <laughs> I, said, no, I want to hear it. And then we you know, got louder and louder. And then he was so shocked at the voice that he had. Another one was uh, someone came and shared how he had double parked. And a, and a white driver came up behind him and just swore every imaginable word to him and how he got so scared. And so we, we processed that. And the way we did it was, the way I had them do it is, I had the person put on a, a white mask and the other person was Asian and the person had to yell at them to tell them the same thing the white person did. And what was amazing for them is not only did they find that they did have that voice, but there was, a, an, and there was an epiphany, which today I will never forget. And he said, is this what it feels like to be white? You have no fear. And they were just like, wow. It's not much what blacks said when they were given a gun in Vietnam. Is this what power feels like? To be legalized to have a gun. And they just had never known that feeling. And then along with that, of course, was that each of the men discovered that they did have a voice inside of themselves that was raging 
And so they really got to share that part. Also, along with that part is when I dealt in relationships, every every single man's issue was that their partners were were white women who were really angry at them because their men, the men would, the Asian men would never fight back. And so every one of them said, you know, it's either do or die in this group, or I'm out of the relationship. And so I taught them in how to be able to get angry, even at the smallest things, because their greatest fear was it was disrespectful. And the second thing was that it would hurt the person if they got angry with them like that, and particularly a white person. And so they had to, I taught them how to be petty, which was things like, and when you when you walk up to, to she says, well, you know, do you want do you want to go to a movie tonight? No, I don't want to go to a movie. And they had to say it like this, and no apologies, no, 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 I don't want to go to a movie. No, I don't want to go to that restaurant. I want to go to this restaurant. So they had to learn to realize that they could say, they had to learn how to say no before they could passionately say yes, and that was their practice. And it was very funny because every year we had an acknowledgement ceremony where they could invite all their partners and family. And every single woman, woman to a T said this, you brought me him back. Now I don't have to be the only angry one. The anger is balanced for the first time in our relationship. And for the men, they not only grew up, grew in their relationships, to having a full range of emotions. They were able to be much more assertive in their jobs. They were much more able to be able to say out loud, no, I feel like that's racist. That's not right. I feel like you talked over me. Excuse me, you interrupted me. And by the way, all those three things I just said right now, I had to develop inside of myself because of the white culture being so disrespectful. Interrupting me, talking over me, uh, as if I were invisible, and then also saying things to me that I thought were very racist and disrespectful. So I taught the men how to be able to be succinct use their intensity of their voice, not like, oh, please don't do that. But just say, that was disrespectful. You interrupted me, excuse me, I'm not done. And then I tried, and then when I started doing my workshops, I started working with groups in companies to learn how to intervene. Excuse me. I think that when Manoir was talking, he just got interrupted by you stand up and speak whenever you saw something go on for any underrepresented group or anyone who got interrupted and put down so you start working as a community rather than waiting for that one group to be the only one to notice that it's even happening and what i'm saying about noticing which is very critical to the work i do out in the public is is noticing impact one thing i learned i learned a long time ago working with corporate america and in educational settings was they did not look at impact and most of the time they just talked Regardless of people's reactions, they just kept going. And even if they saw someone upset or crying or looking away, they never stopped and go, Manoir, I noticed when I was talking about this, I noticed you looked away. What came up? I remember once working at a major government agency and a woman was crying right in front of the guy as he was talking. And I said, Michael, do you notice that she's crying? And he goes, yeah. And then this other guy yelled out, and I have a question. And I said, just a moment. Don't you want to know why she's crying? And he goes, oh, okay. And I said, how many of the rest of you notice this? And so I worked a lot on intent and impact, that every time there's an action, there's a reaction in the room. 
And that's what I train therapists all over the country is to not only look at it, but to notice what to say. To notice many things is asking the person what came up for you, asking the other person, why do you think you didn't notice? What would be a way to ask her? Maybe going back to the person who was interrupted or ignored. What angered you about the way he reacted or she reacted? What hurt you about it? What's familiar about it? In other words, this whole dialogue that gave you a much larger context. And that's why so many therapists were going, oh my God, I never even learned how to stay in it. In fact, everything that we saw whenever there was a discriminatory incident was a town hall meeting. And all it was, was one damn microphone. You just come up, you could talk for five minutes. Thank you. Next person. Thank you. Next person. There was never any thought of to ask you further to go deeper or to notice the impact on people when you were talking. And so for me, that's a Western way of doing it. Quantity, never quality, never depth, never intimacy, never working together as a community, all very important ingredients. And I recently wrote a paper and it was uh, when diversity is not just a workshop. In other words, something check off the box, mm. but it's more than that. Mm. And I, to me, if I were to rephrase that, I would say that diversity in the men's movement is not just people in the group, is whether or not you're going to deal with the issues that they bring and that are of concern to them. Mm. And that would be my challenge for the men's movement. I've been to China several times and Japan a lot where I taught workshops. And it seemed to me when I was in China, my impression was people are very expressive and feel free to express anger and, and uh, are pretty, pretty. Do you have, any, you have any idea why that would be different? Well, because everybody there gives permission to each other to, to be expressive. Whereas in Japan, they don't. Well, have you ever been in a room with all men and they wanted to know how a woman felt no and yeah you know, well I've, I've been i've been in government agencies where there's only one or two women out of maybe 500 men and then i said well how do you how do you feel about what's going on as women oh it's fine and then, and then five minutes ago they told me how horrible it was when you're in china you've grown up from the day you were born where everyone looked like you Every day you were supported in one way, shape or another, that you had a voice. In this country, if you were to look at a model as an Asian man or an Asian person for all your thousands of models, who would they be? In every sector of this country, who would be your model? And Martin so- Lewis. Movie stars, Korean no. models. Well, what's interesting about it is that when 70% of white people were, well, they had a poll, it wasn't necessarily 70% all white people, but it said 70% of white people who were polled could not name one single Asian person uh, that uh, a writer, uh, a famous person, or an Asian person they were influenced by. It just doesn't exist. And so I think people know Macy Hirono, the senator from Hawaii. She's pretty. Yeah, but but most people don't even know, you know, the Senate and the House representatives. So, you know, the branches of government. But what I'm trying to say is that that when you grow up like that, now when you grow up white, like someone said in my newest film, uh, "If These Halls Could Talk," I just realized something. All of my life as a white woman, 
other than being a woman, I have never had to adjust myself culturally to any room I walk into. I want you to think about that at almost every major room you walk into, you'll always see yourself and your people there. So you feel comfortable. I want you to think about what it was like when you went to China and everyone didn't look like you. Or maybe people didn't speak English at all to you. And by the way, the, the most English speakers in all the world are in China. Most people don't realize that. In fact, the people in China may speak up to five to six different languages. But you can imagine how what a struggle it is. And by the way, when you went to China, just out of curiosity, did you learn Cantonese or Mandarin? It's about the limit of my vocabulary. I want you to think about that. There you were in the heart of it. And that was the only one you learned. Now think about that. And then think about when white people go to China, they want everyone to speak English. Yet when they come here, when, when, when people come here, they expect us all to speak English here too. And, and to me, that is the, the contradiction that so incenses me is that people need to be called on that. In fact, I, I would much more prefer that, you know, that white people, when they come, that they have to learn Chinese, that they have to learn Cantonese. And I always joke with the rest of the world. I just, you know, you brag to the rest of the world, you're multicultural and you got all the cultures here, but you don't learn anything about them. You don't really learn much other than their holidays. When you think about, even when you mention it, when you would ask about the Chinese culture, it would be Gung Hei Fa Choi, it might even be martial arts, but it won't be a whole lot about else about the culture, not much more. And when you ask people, you know, where, where are you from? Say they say, I'm from uh, Toysan. I really challenge any person in America who's white, if they ever follow that up with, tell me what Toysan is like. Tell me what you love about Toysan. Tell me what's special about the people of Toysan. Tell me what's been hard coming here in this city. What can I do to make it more welcoming for you? Those are all the questions that, that immigrants have never been asked since they've been here. And it's not, it doesn't even look in the brochure for people to welcome their, this is how it really looks. This is, this is one immigrant memory for everybody in, in this college. You went like this, oh, how are you? Do you like it here? Have you seen this over here? Have you seen this over here? Have you, have you gone here too? Would you like to live here? Isn't it wonderful? Nothing about their culture. And I remember uh, one college I went to did this. Well, what we do here is we ask the students, what are some of the products for cooking or hair, uh, whatever that might be that they would like us to make sure our store, our, our you know, school store is filled with it. And when we find out that they don't have things like this or they you know, don't, aren't able to get those, we, we have a bus that takes them and drives them to the next city to go do their shopping so they could cook. And that's how they got more Asian people to be coming to their college. Mm. Think about that. It reminds me of that story, which I tell in one of my workshops is when the American Indians, uh, uh, not the American, when Lewis and Clark met the American Indians, they were speaking Spanish. And through an interpreter, uh, they asked, why, why are you speaking Spanish? And you know what they said? Why to welcome the new people coming? It never occurred to us. And imagine that even as I am saying that today, 
And I also remembered something the First Nation people taught me, that when they met the first settlers, they asked three things of them. Take care of the land, share what you have. Uh, you know, share, you know, she uses, take care of the land, share what you have, and take good care of each other. Mm. About those, how those things are still relevant today, and we, ne- we didn't follow any of those. We just took, took, took. And so, but if I were to say anything to people, I would say my number one experience of white males in history and throughout today, take, 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 but never about giving, sharing. And it just seems so basic to what they asked. And I think to me, that is what I thought this country was supposed to be about. That's what I think that the men's movement should be about. It's not just about the archetypes, but to really find ways to take care of each other. And I, I like and I want the intersection between women's issues and men's issues to take good care of each other. And also that men have got to speak up because they're the ones that are mostly in power. White males are the ones that are mostly in power and they've got to speak up to say something. And they've got to look at themselves and take a look at these issues, not just in men's gatherings, but in the community to speak up about these. And I, and I expect them to. And if they ever want people of color, then they've got to start having those issues that are important to our communities. And I really encourage them to come into our communities, to join in on protests that are important. I would like the men's movement to take to do something about the anti-Asian violence towards our elders. Yeah, and for people who don't know, they Trump aggravated it by talking about the China virus, blaming China for COVID, and then people assumed, oh, I see someone who looks Asian, I should beat them up because they brought this virus here. Right, right. but by remembering that that there has been a lot of anti-Asian feeling long before Trump. You know, in Chico, Chinese people came here to build railroads, and they there are all kinds of incidents of people, Chinese workers, being killed. And, yeah, and you know, so, in Chico. Yeah, and and uh, they were the, I don't remember a single incident in the history of the railroad where white people were asked to go put the dynamite into the caves. And when the when the dynamite didn't go off, it was the Asian men who were asked to go into the caves to relight it and to find out what happened. And so our lives were very expendable. And also along with that, most people don't know that there was an Asian and black community that not only created their own union, but supported each other and the town was burned down. And so there have been many attempts for, for people of color. And so what I, what I say, you know, it was very interesting recently, I, I saw pictures of in the 60s of whites, their look, the look on their faces uh, during the civil rights movement and then compared it to the ones at Charlottesville. And they looked exactly like they had their, the brothers and sisters were all there. And when you look at today at, at the anti-vaxxers, when you, when you take a look at the people who thought that the election was a fraud, uh, it's 99.9% white males, white people. Well, it's, it's not white males, but it's white people, yeah. But it is predominantly whites, male. Yeah. But, but it doesn't mean that it's all white males, but, but it is predominantly white males that fuel it. And of course, white families like that. And so 
but it so when you see it you keep getting bombarded with it and i think that's why there's there's this great divide between the 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 white people and people of color today even today because of that and i think that has to be talked about and also families have got to stand up and say something and talk about it well Not, trump aggravated it or at least made it more conscious that the division Right. And his father was a Nazi, too. So most people don't know that. And, and well, by the way, the, one of the reasons why when I asked about him being German was also because uh, uh, because he was trying to show off his mansions. So they filmed his bedroom and there on the on the desk top in his, in his bedroom was famous speeches by Adolf Hitler. Hitler. Mein Kampf. Yeah. 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 And so when you think about it, much of the blueprint that that Hitler used to find a group was almost identical to the way that Trump figured it out, but which is not so hard. Read. So I, I wonder if he, if he really read it. Well, my hunch of it is, is that the speeches were probably short enough so he could. <laughs> he read them bit by bit in yeah. TV. I, I wanted to ask you about China's new policy. I realize that you don't speak for China, but you might have some insight as to why President Xi would do this thing, campaign against sissy, men that we 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 don't want any of our entertainers to be sissies we don't want them to be like the korean boy bands what do you have any guesses as to what that what the motivation for that is well none at all <laughs> when you wrote that i i the first time i read it so uh uh <laughs> i remember someone once asked me uh, how are the people in china today doing and i said 1.4 uh, billion. <laughs> what I said is, I'm not Sarah Palin. I can't see that far. <laughs> um, the truth of it really is, is actually the issues that are most important to me are the ones that are happening here. Yeah. And, and the ones about the anti-Asian violence is something that's very much on my mind. And, uh, and the violence of Blacks towards Asians and, uh, and then the silence of whites around. Like, I, I'm, I'm shocked that, that why white folks aren't offering to escort the Asian uh, senior citizens. Uh, and, and it's almost like it never even occurs them are coming into our communities to help out, you know, offering money for, for, for lab drives, et cetera. It's almost as if everyone just kind of went quiet, you know? And, uh, and so it's just not talked about. And so when you think about it today, when was the last time you heard something? It's like, it's not on news anymore. It's almost like, as long as we don't talk about it, it just goes away. So, so that has a, a great concern for me there. Um, uh, and you're right about the Trump influence, but once again is, think about it, is that Trump is not viewed as a white male. He's viewed as an eccentric personality that's dangerous, but not necessarily as the poster child for white males. And so he's, not, he's really not connected to his being white. Though I think that everything he does, he gets away with. Uh, no person of color or a woman could get away with what he does. And, and, and that is a very good example one more time, you know. And his influence is still there. But it's always been 30, 40% of this country uh, has always been supporting these type of movements, whether it be racism or sexism or homophobia. Well, people uh, say the explanation is poor whites who used to have good jobs in factories working in Detroit in the car industry or the coal mines or whatever. Now they don't have those kind of good jobs. So they they blame people of color for, for their economic problems. Do you think that's an accurate? 
Well, the truth of it is, they can't blame people of color since the beginning. And most people don't know that the 10 year uh, uh, exclusionary act was because whites were feeling threatened by Asian labor costs that were so cheap. That's like 19 so, yeah. or something. Yeah. But I think that also there's one more fact I think is really important, and that is that predictions that two years ago or, or a year ago, for the very first time in the history of the United States, uh, white babies were outnumbered by people of color. Right. And I think that, that what it is, is that white people aren't getting all the jobs. They feel like they're losing uh, the country and that they're having to be led by people of color. And so there's a great feeling of threat. So I remember one, 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 one white woman put it pretty well. I think it's, it's kind of like says something that even James Baldwin backed up too. And, and he said, she said, um, I don't mind having a black president, but not now, we're not ready for one. <laughs> and, and it may be 10 years from now, but the truth of it really is there's been a whole set of 10 years are as James Baldwin said, America is one tough town. And I think that what it doesn't want to admit to say it out loud is, I don't want a person of color. I would rather they go back to where they came from. That term, that cliche has been used since the start of this country, go back to where you came from. It also tells you something, and you're being also a history major and myself, is that it shows you that who decides to interpret what that history is. So when, person, when a white person says, go back to where you came from, it's the assumption that white people did also not come from someplace. So when I tell white people, you are the sons, great grandsons and daughters of boat people, they go like this, because the term itself is for us, not for them. They were somehow sprouted out of this country. Or as one white woman said in my second film, I'm, my mother is Italian and my father's German and I'm neither one. You know that that is all of our campuses today. Both of my parents, one's Italian, one's German, but I'm neither one of those. And do you know why they say that? Because they say they're American. Well, they, they have one more rationalization. I've never been there. Hmm. See how stupid that is? How really ignorant that is? Because, and there's another thing is, is because none of their teachers None of their leaders who have European heritage, other than John F. Kennedy, bragged about their European heritage. They don't remember a single teacher that they can remember or an administrator walking to their office and seeing their European heritage adorned all over the walls or to talk about it. What they see is, I'm just an American. Or as I remembered once, I was working for the AmeriCorps and I was sharing about racism. And this is what all the white students said to me. You're dividing this country. There is no such thing, Manoir. So I said, well, okay, maybe you're right. So well, let's try an experiment. So I called up the tech who I had met him earlier for setting up, you know, for the PowerPoints. I said, could you help us? We have a bit of a problem with the TV. So he came on in. He goes, what's the problem? I said, well, before we get to that, um, would you do me a favor just to just kind of a little fun little exercise? Because yeah, could you point out the Americans in the class? And he pointed out to only the white people. Really? Mm -hmm. hmm. And this woman said, I'm from Belgium. How'd you get that? I, and I'm from, from France. I'm from Germany. 
And it was just because they were white. Mm. And all the Asians and all the Latinos were immigrants. And of course, they weren't too sure about some of the one or two black folks. And I said, that's it. I remember when I was in New York, in Rochester, a minister accused me of the very same thing, of being dividing this country by my type of talks. It was on a Saturday. Then on Sunday, it was raining at night, but I still had a full house. And then he stood up and I said, Reverend, you're here again. He goes, I wish to apologize. And I said, why? He said, my wife and I went to a Japanese restaurant last night, Saturday night, after your workshop. And my wife looked around and said, honey, we're the only Americans in the room. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. Good. I'm, I'm really interested in youth because, I mean, it's a kind of a truism that they're our future. And I, I'd like to know what you learned as a Chinese American boy growing up in a poor black Hispanic neighborhood in Oakland, what, what did you learn about having to be a man? Uh, one of the, uh, do you know Ashanti Branch who does groups for boys of color in the Bay? No, I've heard of him. He, he, he said that what, what he, he learned growing up in Oakland as a boy of color is that it wasn't cool to be smart in school and you had to know how to fight. Yeah, so, and I think that, that, was, that was very true. Uh, it's very funny, you know, a couple of things is I never say Hispanic, I say Latinos or Chicanos because Hispanic was a term that was made by Richard M. Nixon and white people. And then uh, Asian uh, Latino people picked it up just because they, you know, to appease white people. The, the other thing is, is that um, uh, I remember a, a, a white male police officer, a Latino police officer and a white police officer went to Canada. And what they did, they discovered it was the very same problems with crime as they did in the Latino and black neighborhoods. And what they discovered is that poverty plays a really big part on survival, whether you're white. So it's not really something in our culture. And it froze on your part. Mm -hmm. Come on, Skype. I mean, Zoom. Come on. Zoom. Zoom in. Come on, Zoom. Okay. Okay. So um, the policeman. So he, so he went to um, these this white and Latino uh, police officers who were from Oakland, went to Canada to be with the Royal Police, who no longer have horses, but cars. And he said, I noticed the same type of crime in the poor neighborhoods for white people. And he said, it's so funny because I thought it was just characteristic of the Latinos and blacks, fighting, turf, everything. He said it was the same problem in uh, those poor neighborhoods and whether they were white, but they were the common not denominator, they were poor. And they had, so I think that that part is really important. I think that for people of color, particularly uh, because of discrimination, uh, you learn how to protect yourself, to defend very early. Uh, and I think that that in many ways helped me even when I was in my neighborhood. Uh, I live here in Berkeley in a poor neighborhood. 
And I remember these two black kids were trying to, young boys were in the, you know, 14, 15, were tearing down the, the street sign. And uh, they came up, pushed up against me, and they said, he goes, who the hell do you think you are? And I said, I just, Come on, Zoom. Zoom, come on. Come on, Zoom me, Zoom me, Zoom me. Come on. So how far did you get? Okay. The, the boys said, who the hell do you think you are? So, uh, by the way, this may well be recorded on my end. I might be able to pass it on to you, so I can't tell. But um, So anyway, they came pushed up right up against me. And uh, but, but being born in Oakland, and so I just looked at him and I said, you sure you want to do that? And he backed off. And so what I learned growing up was not to back down. Uh, however, our common denominator was you don't back down, you know, person, white person comes into your community, but everywhere we went was facing off white administrators, et cetera. So we knew how to adapt. There were two worlds that we lived in. There's another part that I think is very important for whites to look at when they look at our communities is, can you imagine all that rage that gets built up? And I remember once I was doing a workshop and these two white women said, I, I can understand why the white guy, you know, why the black guy just got so mad and, and you know, I mean, I, I really can't. Why didn't he just talk it out? And, uh, and then, and then, and then, you know, so then this is what I did. Uh, next person, I didn't answer the two women. And they were livid, okay, livid. And by the time I got to the third person, someone said, those two women are really pissed. And I said, what's pissing you off? They, she said, you didn't say anything when we said that to you. And I said, well, that's exactly what happens for people of color when they put out something that's of concern and then it doesn't get answered. In fact, we might even get attacked. We might even get blamed. We might even be told we're crazy. Now imagine that this happens not only to you, but to your family, to your children, and at your job, and in the community. And when you face police officers, teachers, a bank loan, whatever that might be. And imagine all that anger building up. And then one day it just explodes. And I said, you only had less than eight minutes of it and you were ready to walk out. You see, the reason why people of color don't walk out is because you really think it would be different someplace else. And all these people raise their hands, exactly. And I think that's a different world. So how, in those Oakland schools, how were you able to get college bound because you you know you have graduate degrees how were you able to get through that system well first of all is uh, uh asian people are known for going to college there are more asians than whites in the uc system now yeah. well, there is now and 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 then that's because you know our incredible preoccupation with education as being the only avenue and that's what i remembering people don't know that in the chinese culture the scholars highly revered as well as education 
And it was your upward mobility. If you could be a, a scribe and then you could work your way up. Right. And that we have to pick and choose certain occupations. Otherwise we won't get in. Uh, I remembered uh, uh, my, my first wife, your father was um, the first graduate of UC Berkeley in architecture. Okay. And then he went to apply and they told him he could be a ditch digger, but there was no way that any of the white uh, folks there in the construction company would take any orders from a tank. And he was just shocked. And so, um, and that still exists to a certain degree of not wanting to take or believing that Asian people could do that. So, so, but I do remember I did struggle. I, I didn't struggle. Well, first of all, my, my brothers and sisters were like the top 1% of the nation. So I struggled because I was less than, than what they could do. However, what I discovered was that so many Asians chose professions that didn't require a whole lot of talking. Hmm. So they didn't choose law, for instance. So they chose accounting, engineering. Computer science, engineering. Yeah. It's what you see today. Uh, and because we also don't have a whole lot of models for, for seeing people in those professions either. So I don't remember seeing a, uh, 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 an Asian person as a lawyer or any type of leadership thing on TV. So you, that's really how you get inspired most of the time. Uh, and then people who did come to school as you know, outstanding, they were almost never people of color. They were mostly white people that came. And when the people of color came, uh, which, which, I, which I, I talk a lot about in schools is, they never once mentioned what they had to go through uh, as people of color. And so that's what I always do when I come, I talk about the racism that, that people experience so that you see the Academy Awards, you see the Emmys, you see the Tonys, and you see uh, what the Met said today, yesterday was the first time in the history since 1883 that they even allowed and even had a black composer uh, actually uh, have a play, an opera with a black composer. And so uh, I, I think those, those parts, even when I did my film, I found out that, that people of color and women are never first camera, first sound, first editing. It's just unheard of in the business. So it goes on and on. It's like no pilots of color, not very few women who are pilots until more recently, you know, even television programs. If it was not for Netflix and Amazon, et cetera, you would not be seeing Asians, Latinos, and Blacks in the market, you know, for theaters. It just wouldn't exist, you know. And so they got access because of that way. People said, well, where did they come from? They said, I said, they've always been here. They just weren't given roles that everyone else got to play. And so that whole acting out about anger, et cetera, is, is something that, that uh, and then also because you don't get to see Asian people uh, uh, and many people of color in conflict with whites and being heard, understood and change takes place. So you almost always see us, us as subordinates helping white people out who are the leaders, but we rarely are the ones that win cases that win the day or win the girl or win the guy. Mm -hmm. and, and so that lack of that image is part of that, you know. How many siblings do you have and what's your birth order? <laughs> I told you, you'll laugh. I'm the fourth oldest and the second youngest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and what gave you the impetus to go to, where, where did you, you where were you an undergrad? 
Oh, I was, uh, I did all my, my work at Central State University. Mm-hmm. And, and why did you decide on your major and minor in history? So first of all, I majored and minored in political science and, uh, and well, with the idea to go into pre-law. Mm. I was taking pre-law classes and, uh, but it was the death, a murder of John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Uh, just prior to my graduating. And I changed majors rather than graduate. And I went into child psychology. And then after child psychology, I, I went and got a master's in education and then eventually a master's in counseling. Hmm. So I have quite a varied background and yes. uh, very few diversity trainers are filmmakers, are therapists, are, and also educators. And so I, when I went into the field, and if you take a look at my film someday, which I hope you do, um, I was the very first to use like five cameras to look at impact. And then I was, I was one of the very few uh, directors that was also a therapist that asked and facilitated discussions uh, using therapeutic techniques and to deal with diversity issues. And so I also specialized in mindfulness. And so I transformed the field of counseling and diversity training and facilitation by using mindful techniques from an Eastern approach and Buddhist approach on how to be able to deal uh, to deal with conflicts, communications, uh, and uh, when discriminatory incidences occur. So I'm very useful today, partly because um, there's so many confrontations. And so I, one of the very few diversity trainers that actually deal and specialize when confrontations come up, how to de-escalate them within seconds, and then re-engage people, how to create communities within seconds, a sense of community with people. Uh, and so I specialize in that, in working with that, whether it be for 30 minutes to two hours, I can help people create how to do that and how to be able to really listen. And then also I created using um, film role, role plays is how to expand your observational ability to notice what's going on in a room. So basically I, I film scenarios and then I stop and have people look at it and then see what they see and then ask them, what would you do or say? What do you think is going on here? Where's the connection or disconnection? And then where are people losing each other? And so how you could re-engage them. And so it's a really full scale. It's never been done breaking it down like that. And so that's why I always tell people that active listening is just a very small part. And even active listening is a phenomenal skill to have. Well, how do you de-escalate a conflict in a, just a few minutes? What's the magic? Oh, I'll give you a good example. Okay. Uh, so somebody, um, I wonder if I can actually, I'm not very good at the tech part here, so I'll, I'll skip that part now. But what happens is, say for instance, does uh, this happened once, okay? It's a role play that someone did and it actually did happen. So what happens is, is this Asian woman says this, um, you know, as an Asian woman, I just feel like I'm invisible, I'm talked over. And then a white man interrupts, excuse me, Aaron, don't you ever, you people ever get tired of being a victim? Why did you just say something when it happened? Why are you bringing it up now? Okay, so when you ask most people, they'll go, they'll be shocked, they'll be pissed, they'll be protecting Aaron, Aaron will get mad, it escalates, someone else in the room says something, something goes higher and higher and higher, okay? Now, what I train people is, first of all, is to look at where was the moment of, dis of disconnect, okay? So it might be the moment he invalidated what she said, okay? So what I simply I have three or four different techniques. Number one is, so uh, I'll say his name is uh, uh, Michael, okay? So Michael, uh, did you notice Aaron's reaction? 
when you said what you did, when you said, you know, don't you ever get tired of being a victim? Uh, yeah, I did. So what was it? Well, she looked away. So, so Michael, if you'd like to find out why she looked away, what would be a good question to ask her? Okay. So it goes, so we'll go, so Aaron, what happened when I said that you were playing, being playing a victim? And then why didn't you say something? And then she gets to share what came up. Now in that process, I get to go, you immediately get him re reconnected with her. She gets re-engaged, but also one very important part, which has been missing in mediators, is Aaron gets to tell him off. Not that you as a facilitator take care of her, mm. the, the a perpetrator, which looks like you're helping her, but in fact, you're taking over. So she gets to say, well, I was really, you know, when you just said it was my fault, et cetera, I just felt invalidated. I just felt like you trivialized what I said. So then Aaron, tell him, tell him what angered of you about the, what he did. Well, it just made me feel like it was my fault. Like, you know, why didn't I just say something? What hurt you about that, Aaron? Well, it just feel like uh, you didn't even have any curiosity about what I said or any caring. Um, what's familiar about it? Well, tell him. Well, what's familiar about this happens to me, to me as an Asian woman all the time in this company. And then this one that's really important is, how could he have shared with you when you told your story, how could he have reacted to you differently? Well, he could have asked me questions. He could have reflected back what I said. He could have shown some more empathy. He could have shown some emotion that he really cared. And then I really felt like, like he really heard what I had to say. You see, these are all the elements of responding rather than just actively listening. Now, another one that you could use is, uh, which, is the, which is very similar to that, which is um, uh, you could say to him, uh, so what, it, what I heard you say is you can't understand why she said what she did and why is she playing a victim? So I, I could say is, so what I heard you don't understand, would you like to understand? Mm. I turn it. So then if you wanted to understand what would be a good question to ask her, then it follows the very same technique. Now, then how you engage the rest of the group, it might be something like this. Um, so as Aaron was sharing that this is very familiar to her, raise your hand if what you heard that goes on for Aaron is also familiar in your life. Raise your hand. And you get to go around to them and ask to tell them. Another one could be is so that you could pull the group together is Aaron shared some really painful things that just happened to her just now. What is one thing you heard her say? People get to tell her that. When Michael jumped in here just now, what did you see happen? Tell Michael. I felt like you interrupted. I felt you disrespected to the good. Yeah. Right. So then he gets to hear from other people. For those of you that are white in the room, how many of you noticed what Michael did? How many of you that this is familiar that you see whites doing this to people of color or to women, men doing this to women? So then you really get the engagement to happen here. What I was trained in the Western approach in counseling was I jump in, I take over, I come up with the answer. But in the more of the Buddhist and Eastern approach is a more communal approach is that you go to the person so they have, they're empowered to speak that along with that, you use the community and then it could also be is, what did you learn about this today? What, what was good, what was hard about it? Now I'd like everybody to pair up and I'd like you to share with your partner what came up for you when you watched these two going through what they did, what was good and what was hard about it. So then they all get a chance to talk. 
So it, I remember once when I had a room of, of 14,000 people in the Moscone Center, and it was public administrators from all over the world. And I say to people, how did I get that everybody got to talk for eight minutes, okay? And guess what? Every man, you know, after I finished all the whole workshop, I asked people, and the men, all the men in my next workshops after that would say, that's statistically impossible. <laughs> and, all, and all the women would say, pair up. Now, however, the perspective for the women was talk to each other. All the men said the reason why I'm statistically impossible because they thought they were all talking to me, which is so male. How could 14,000 people get in to tell you, talk to you? It never was about each other, which tells you the male perspective. And that the male will be asked questions to come up with a solution. And it's definitive. And so that to me, and that was also the same process I went with you to this morning, prior to the workshop, prior to doing the interview today, was I said the human connection was very important to me. And that I actually wanted people to see our reactions to each other, even though I know it's you know, it going to be in a transcript, but how it would have meant for them to see your reactions to me so that they really get to hear. Because it's rare that you get to see a person of color talking to a white person and they're being receptive, being curious, being empathetic. And, and, and if you get to see some of my, my TED Talks, you'll get to see some of the very same things that you laughed about. Uh, you know, a couple, three or four times you laughed. And what I said to the audience in the TED Talk is, I want you to notice that I'm not laughing. Because I didn't say it to amuse you, though I've learned to amuse you with my discrimination. Because then if I, you take it too seriously, you might get mad at me because I'm talking about white people. So I learned how to make a joke out of it. But, I, but it's rare that you get someone to say, I'm not laughing. In fact, I was hurt when you laughed or I felt you dismissed me more when you laughed. So that those are things that I would not have done, but because you're interviewing me, et cetera, I kept it going, but that's exactly what I would have done in the interactive process. Mm. That's exactly what women want from men is I want you to say something. I want you to notice that you think it's funny when I tell you about what a man says to me and how he demeans me, but you laugh. And so I get the messages, do I upset the hilarity in the room and become someone who spoils everything by saying, I'm not funny, it hurt. And so we all learn very quickly. So any underrepresented group knows exactly what it's like. And very few dominant groups realize how much they're being caretaked and taken care of constantly in rooms because of the power that they have to hire, fire, and to uh, label people. And so that's what I worked when I worked in corporate America and even the Pentagon for four and a half years, Best Buy for four and a half years, I worked with their top folks because I confronted power dynamics that were happening in rooms. And, uh, and I had no idea, by the way, therapeutically, that people, diversity trainers didn't, weren't therapeutically working in rooms. So what I realized is that most of them were not, they were mostly presenters, but very rare did you find a facilitator who was a therapist who worked therapeutically, which is on the emotional content which is what I mostly work with. Yeah, I really, I get that. Um, you worked in San Francisco schools for decades. And so I'm, as I said, I'm interested in youth because there's increasing rates of anxiety, depression, fewer men are going to college. They're only 40% of the university students in the States. They're not as likely to graduate. So from your perspective of decades working with youth, 
Uh, I'm curious what changes you've seen or what explanations you have. Something that's really, really, really important um, is that when I was wanting internship hours at a junior high in San Francisco, okay, so I became a counselor, but I had an opportunity to become a seventh grade counselor, okay? And I wanted to get internship hours, okay? I could not get anyone to write me off, write my hours off because they weren't counselors. They were administrative licenses they got. So that was the first discovery. Second thing that I discovered when I wanted to do groups, the other counselors were very threatened by what I was doing. They had never done counseling groups. Because were, counselors do, you take this class and you take that class. No, what counselors do is they do mostly administrative work. Yeah, they, they do yeah. class schedules, et cetera. And they and they and so when you get kicked out of class, you they you know they they read you the you know the riot act, et cetera, and they send you back to class. They don't do counseling. Right. They they haven't even thought about doing a counseling group. And so so I always went, I remember I did it in my classrooms and well as I did it as seventh grade counselor. And then yeah, you won't believe what happened was. Then when it came to the next year where I was supposed to be renewed, they all protested and said, Manoir's got to have an administrative degree, not just a counseling degree. And so they got me out. Isn't that amazing? Which I thought was very fascinating about the process. But what I realized is counselors in school schools were not doing counseling. Right. So when you think about it, given all the issues that go up, B2, Black Lives Matter, trans issues that are going on, they aren't even come close to being prepared. So I am called in to work with faculty, with staff, with counseling groups at schools, universities, to help them how to counsel, not only just counsel them, but guess what else? They don't know how to deal with inter-faculty issues of, of race, gender, trans issues either. So in other words, they didn't know how to even talk to each other or deal with each other's issues, let alone work with the students' issues. And, the, and the, it was compounded was they didn't know have the time to do it. So how many times have you ever heard, oh, we're calling outside counselors to come in to do grief work? Well, because these counselors don't do the grief work. And sometimes they pretend they know how, but because they think it's just sitting there actively listening, but they don't know how the techniques. In fact, what I often, you know, those, event, those uh, that vignette I even gave you were there right now, you have no idea how many counselors who are actually private therapists are counseling centers don't even know how to even handle even those. So they, they and by the way, I know because I, as, a, as a degree in counseling, I did not get any training to deal with diversity issues, our gender issues, our confrontations. I did. In fact, I had one little class on multiculturalism and it was the history of race issues in the United States. And that was all it was. I remembered this Asian woman and I were in the class and we just got pissed at what this, this uh, white guy said in class, okay? And this is what the Asian teacher did in the multicultural class. She turned around, she goes, uh, turn to page 42. And then we met her at the break and we said, what did you just do to us? You told us to turn onto another page to read a chapter. Why didn't you deal with what we had to say? You know what she said? I'm afraid of conflict. <laughs> And I was only 22 years old, and this is what I said to her, that you shouldn't be teaching this class. Because if you're not talking about racism and just race history, then you are robbing us as therapists. But that was my entire experience. And I said, has it changed folks? And the people said, no, it hasn't. We still don't have the experience. And so when you were expecting the very people, therapists, uh, school counselors to deal with, even HR, 
they are and more trying to deal with this. So when you see the escalation in, in depression, in tension, in, 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 eyes, et cetera, because there's no outlet for them to do it. And there's no classroom teacher that's prepared to have these conversations and often say this to their students, it's not appropriate here. And when you're in your faculty, it's not appropriate because that's a personal issue. So then there's no place to deal with this. And so that's why today our, our company is such in demand because we're one of the very few that actually take it on head on. Hmm. You know, even school psychologists don't work with kids that much. They test. Right. You know, exactly. Kid have a learning disability or something. They're not counseling kids very much from what I can tell. Right. I, I, I did special ed, so I know exactly what they do for testing. And so it, and it's all today being you teaching to a test to pass and, and that and your pay and your school district, how much money they get is dependent on how good your scores are, which is really ridiculous when you think about it, because really, in fact, when, when they started at, at uh, Bolt Law School, uh, they started to uh, uh, do an assessment of who are their most successful lawyers. OK. And what they discovered it was, it was the one who has the best social skills. It was not the one who had the highest academic scores, but the one who had the best social uh, uh, interactive uh, schools, uh, score, scores, and also the ones who had very good emotional intelligence that did the very best as lawyers. Because they're working with people and they're convincing people. That makes sense. But they pick up cues faster. Yeah. And, and I think that's what I discovered is that the culture doesn't really, both in therapy and even in law or business, how you actually look at interactions and how to work with it. So that when I was working with Best Buy, I was shocked at their lack of ob observational skills, as well as their ability to work with people who came like customer service, how to work with people when they came in. And it was just amazing, you know. It's going to be so, worse because of all the kids who are on social media and not working with people face to face. Well, th th that's a whole other issue. I think that, that, that um, well, first of all, we never really taught much social skills anyway, okay? They picked it up from looking at the, the community that they were in. And, and also sometimes if they did got social values like you and I, uh, they, were, they were a bit, you know, in a vacuum. And sometimes social skills, not necessarily ones and social values that you saw practiced in the real world. You know, I learned it in the classroom. Like I always joke is you tell your children to take responsibility when they do something wrong, that I've never heard any adult really do that. At school, in government, Etc. I've always heard alibis. I've even seen the President of the United States do it continuously. So I just said, it just seems like it's a nice value, but whether or not it gets practiced, you know. So do you think kids are more anxious and depressed, or is it just that they're freer to talk about it? Or what do you think is going on? Well, that's a really good question. I think that 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 if I were to say white children and people, children of color, it would be very different. Hmm. Economic issues are also very different. And so I think that puts a great stressor on, on us today. Um, I, I, I think that we have always dealt with the stress of, of being a certain ethnic group, of being poor in America. And I think that there are some people that have a luxury of having therapists and having the luxury to never have to worry about things like food, our shelter, or uh, their physical safety. I think, however, today, when we have all seen the increase of violence and guns, when we begin to see the injustices that go on that are so blatant, that are so public, that are so 
continuously every I, I, in fact i even tell people even that term going postal i didn't grow up with that term and that the number one killer uh in workplaces is violence <laughs> you know it's no longer all these other physical ailments um and so all of, and then the climate you'd have to be uh oblivious and deaf and blind to not be tense whether you're a child or an adult but compounded being adult by now, I mean, today I have never seen so much, I've never seen our country so polarized, so publicly polarized and, and, and groups yelling, screaming and, and what people are bringing into the classroom, that the amount of hatred, that polarization, that demonizing of each other uh, and, and then the sense of violence and racism and then the lack of talking about it or even the ridiculousness by the Republicans Let's not bring up the issue of race, white privilege. Let's void it from our history books. Let's void it from conversations as if somehow if we don't talk about it, it'll go away. And so all of that, and then the blatantness of suppressing votes, you know, less states to vote, let, you know, that you don't get water in line if you're, you're hot, raining eight hours. It's so blatant, the inhumanity so what do you think people are going is, am I the only one that notices this? Am I the only one that notices this happening in people of color or to gays or to women? You know, it's, it's so that what happens is you're building up this incredible rage that is going to burst. And then the news I got today was that this generation will, pay, will face two to three times the climate crises that you see today is my God, then add in the climate what it will do. And we've already seen that in Guatemala with the lack of water and food, they're now pouring over all the borders. And this is the great prediction that people had of climate change, that when you find that you're a country that without water, without food, where do you think you will go? You will go into the next. And I don't know a single country that can stop another country from crossing its borders. And so really, it's really that tension. And then of course the viruses. And so, and we really don't have many avenues or counseling for it. We aren't prepared for it. We were never prepared for this kind of crises that are happening. And it's become more of a have and have nots and, you know, fear of each other. You know, someone once said that fear and hate seem to be so prevalent today. I remember there was a, a, a film, a beautiful film called, uh, with Michael Douglas called The American President. And it was, it, that speech could have been just perfect today. It's about a Republican who goes at him you know, uh, for being so liberal. And he said that for a while, I thought this with my Republican opponent really cared about this country. But I think the only two things he cares about is making you afraid of it or finding someone to blame for it. And when I thought of those two, I thought that's exactly what we see today. We make you afraid of it and to find is taking good care of each other yes. standing up and saying something um i want to end with talking about your briefly about your books and your and your films um you you wrote the art of mindful facilitation in 20 of uh, 2004 we give us a gist of what we would learn if we read that book Oh, it's so long ago, it's hard to believe. Um, in well, when I wrote the book, The Art of Mind Facilitation, 
it has um, 15 major issues that kept coming up in all of my workshops, blame, guilt, things like this. And, uh, but I approached them as from a Buddhist and Eastern approach. And then there also is uh, 15 case studies in which I modeled it after Virginia Satir. And the way she wrote it was, she not only talked to you about the presenting issues, but she also talked to you about her thought process. And, and so family, yeah, so she taught, told you what she was thinking about when she was going through it. And, and even when she was scared. And then along with that, then she presented the type of intervention she used. And then, so when I saw her work, I, I, I've only seen her once and it was phenomenal. It totally changed the world. Yeah. But what was amazing was that when I saw her do the work um, and what profoundly changed me is that when she was getting ready, she had a family. First of all, I couldn't believe that people would have a family in front who'd even do that in front of an audience. And then let alone even be a therapist. But what happened was there was a man in the back and he goes, Virginia, this is all a bunch of bullshit. Hollywood show off. You know, it's all glitter and lights. He was yelling at the top of his lungs, okay? And then I was the teacher and I was, I was sitting in the front row with another very famous therapist. And so she said, come on up here. And I went, what are you saying? Are you kidding? And not only does, does he stop, he stops right next to me. And I'm like, mm. and he says, I want you to say that again, only this time with your fist closed and just yell at me. And then he goes, ah! and then he stops and he goes, oh, I see what you mean. I'm going, what does she mean? So I always ask my auntie, what do you think, you know, that he's being violent, et cetera. And then she says, no. And, and this is what he said. Oh, I know. When you had me close my fist and go like this, I wasn't open to having a dialogue with you. But that you were absolutely wrong. It was going to be a one-way dialogue. When you brought me up closer, it was so that we could talk, not just that I yell at you. And that is when you see my film, The Color of Fear, when the white man in the, is going at it, I have him get up closer. And so that became my work, is bringing it up close. Because my audience are huge, two or 3,000 people at a time, and I have them come up against each other to talk. And that's how I use the techniques. It's, I think it de-escalates. You see a human being. You see a person. So you have to talk with them and be with them. And I have people support that. And so uh, what my book is all about, and I went further than Virginia Satir, is I talked about my thought process as well as when I was afraid. And then going, you know, trying to figure out, well, what did I hear? What, to just process the information so I could work with this couple, which is all these areas that Virginia never covered. And then I talk about my intervention, which I give three or four major interventions that I always use. And at the end, I also talk about the art of summary, how to summarize all the issues that occurred to put them together so it becomes a learning experience. And then the last one, which has never been done by her or any other therapist, is I move the entire group to social action. So it isn't just a therapy session, but it's one that moves everybody to social action. So that's how I came to do social action community work. So it is about creating. And then so there's 15 case studies with that. And then the last is 25 diversity exercises that I created to have people have fun, but to actually have dialogues. 
So they do it through a fun game. So a good example might be is, um, uh, I'll say to people is, please raise your hand. If you, I'm gonna give you a cultural assessment that normally costs 25,000 to $50,000, but I'm gonna give it to you for free. So I'll say, everybody raise your hand if you know who all the sexists are in your company. Raise your hand if you know who all the racists are. All the classes are you are. All those people who are anti-Semitic, raise your hand. And I said, so you already know who they are. Why do we have to assess if they actually exist? The real question everybody is, what are you gonna do about it? And then there's one, another one I do is, everybody stand up. You are in the last five candidates for the presidency of this corporation. You are great. Now, please sit down if you think your gender will be an issue. All the women sit down. Please sit down if you think as a, your ethnicity will be an issue. Please sit down if you're having an accident will be an issue. Please sit down if your age will be an issue. Please sit down if you think um, uh, uh, it could be anything else. Okay. You, tall men usually get big. Are your height any disability? Okay. Now, you're lucky if you get three to four people left standing. Wow. And then you might get a woman or a person of color. Okay. And then this is the last question. Please sit down if you think the job will probably be given to somebody who knows someone in the company. Mm. And they all sit down. And I say to everybody, ladies and gentlemen, this is your diversity program. No one believes it. Imagine that if you could have all been left standing to every one of those questions, what you would be giving to your workplace. You'd be working overtime. Now, think about what you were like when you first came to this company and what you are like today. And that will tell you a lot. And then that begins a phenomenal conversation. I pair everybody up. What happened to you? Mm. So those are some of the exercises that I created that really kind of opened up the dialogue in corporate America and government agencies that they had never, and these were very therapeutic ones to me that I felt that no one had ever really looked at to talk about it and pairing people up to share and learning how to ask them questions. So what they do is they, one person gets to talk for five minutes and the person spends five minutes asking them questions to go deeper. Then after they do that, the speaker tells you in what way were you a good listener and what way could you improve? And then when they're, you switch again, and then the other person tells you as a listener what moved or touched you about what they shared. So then they, that encourages them to speak in the future. And you'd be amazed no one has ever gone through the process. And by the way, most therapists don't even know this technique or even thought of using it. And they're just like enamored, like, wow, what a... I remember I was doing a keynote with the American Psychological Association and a white man interrupted me and said, what? Give me a break, okay? Those are so simple. Tell me more. What angered you? What hurt you? What's familiar? What do you need? Everybody knows about those. Okay? They are not revolutionary. And everybody was, was embarrassed because he interrupted me in the middle of a keynote. And so I said, what I heard you say was, so I, so what's your name? He goes, Matthew. So Matthew, I know they're so simple, so elementary, but do you use them? And he goes, okay, you got me. No, I don't. And I said, why? Because you think they're so simple. If you have a complex model and you've written five books on it 
and you have a workshop that lasts for all oh, 13 sessions, then you'll pay attention to it. You're absolutely right. And I said, raise your hand if that is your goal in life is to write seven books on a system that you created with all these terms. And in fact, it's much more simpler than that, everyone. And in fact, today, when I was getting ready to do my keynote, a therapist said to me, your technique is too simple. And it is because I want people to use it. And also along with that, everyone is, that's the way we as people of color talk to each other. Not in that language that you decide to use. That's way above us. And you have to define the term. So when I tell you something and you make it all so much more complicated, I'm wondering what happened to me. Like academic jargon. Goes from here to here. Yeah. Before we leave this book, what's an example of a social action that you've led people to? Okay, good. So social action might be this, is uh, Thomas over here, who's black, shared that he would like this group to be able to support not only having affinity groups, but to have administrators, upper people, taking diversity training, learning how to deal with conflict, et cetera. Please raise your hand if you'd be willing to support them. Good. Please raise your hand if you'd be willing to be on a committee. Please raise your hand. Please raise your, your hand if you'd be willing to each pair up to talk to an administrator who has power to do something about it. Please raise your hand if you're an administrator who'd be willing, if you have a decision-making process, to meet with this committee to make sure it happens, not two years, three years from now, but actually within three to four months and see it actually happens. Raise your hand. Got it. Um, the next book is What Stands Between Us, Racism, Conversation, Flashcards, which isn't a book, but that, that, that came out of the first book? No, so what happens is it first started from here. It was 5,000 questions that people of color and whites are deathly scared of asking each other. Hmm. Give us some examples. I wrote it down anonymously. For a good example, one is this. A white person asking a person of color, do you ever wish you were white? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Another question that white people ask people of color is, what do we do as white people to keep you from telling the truth? That's a good one. And then, yeah, that's a, now another one that people of color have for white people is, do you ever pretend that you don't know about what's happening? And, and the other one is, uh, are you afraid of people of color? Another one might be is, uh, uh, what are some of the stereotypes that you have of people of color that you're afraid to tell us? That's a good one. Yeah. And now what happened was, two years later, 150 whites and people of color in the Let's Get Real book. And uh, you might have heard of Robin D'Angelo who, who wrote White Fragility is in this book, a number of other authors. And 150 whites and people of color answered those questions in the book and for every question, five people answered it. So there's not one answer. And so there's ones about people of color and white. And so this whole book is filled with those answers. And this is the number one book that we have because say you take a workshop or you want to have a discussion in class, but you don't know if you could get past the trust issues. And so in here are things that people of color say that they would never tell white people. And in here are white people's answers that they would never tell in front of white people of color 
And so it really reveals, and it's, so when you get, you read this out, then you all get to talk about what came up for you, what's true for you as a white person. So this helps white people who are scared going like this. Okay, that's exactly what I think, but I've been scared to say it. People of color get to go, that's exactly how I feel about you in this section over here. But I, they said it, and that's exactly what, so it puts into the words what you're feeling. All of my films have no script. That's what made them so famous. There were five cameras hitting intent impact constantly. And also is what, because they had no script, then people of color and whites were able to go, that's me in that film and began a conversation all over the country. And so really my films are all about having a conversation, not to talk about the films, but what's familiar in your own life. And that's why they, they've been so successful. Mm. Um, what, what's an example of something that people of color would not say to a white person? I hate you. I want to kill you sometimes. Mm. Oh, I saw that in the trailer to one of the videos. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so I said to an audience, what, and someone on the audience got up and said, why did you let that in the film? And so I, I said, okay, so would you rather he not say it and then kill you? <laughs> or would you rather him say it? And then, you, then what could you ask him? Tell me why. What have you had to go through? And then both whites and people of color get to talk about that. Yeah. And so it's really what's in that book is the, almost the unspeakable. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be doing a keynote at, at, a, at a major college. Uh, and what I call the unfinished conversation is our fear of actually sharing what's in our heads that's really sitting there. And I don't care how liberal you think you are, you carry fears of another group. And, and I have tons of them. And, uh, and you know, having a black man shoot my mother five times in the head, I have a whole lot of fears. Did that and happen to you? A black man, uh, one of our students at our school shot my mother five times in the head in a robbery. So it really did happen to me. Oh my God. And, I, and when I shared at Sacramento, California in a, in a keynote, uh, what had happened to my mother, uh, 600 people standing room only, and a black woman stood up and said, oh my God, it was my son who killed your mother. And then, and then there's a whole story in my, my, my book coming out about our connection and then eventually all the stuff that I found out. In fact, I did not even know that the student was at our school 15 years before I became a teacher. And then what had happened that may have caused him to want to kill people and rob them later on in his life. And so that's also part of this whole story that I talk about. And so uh, uh, I know very well, you know, why I should have those stereotypes, but also what this country taught me about black people from the moment I was eight years old and older telling me all sorts of stories about blacks. And so it didn't just happen because my mother shot, it was already happening long before that. Uh, and I saw it on TV and I saw it. And I tell people racism isn't just what I saw, it's what I didn't see. What I didn't see is as leaders, what I didn't see them as teachers, that it also taught me a form of racism is that somehow maybe we weren't good enough. We weren't as good as white people. So that was the message I got that only white people were teachers, presidents, bank presidents, uh, police officers, coaches, and, and the list went was endless. 
or maybe they were only good enough to go on a greeting card. Mm, or to be students. Yeah. Um, so the color of fear, walking each other home, last chance for Eden, are your videos? Yeah, and I really want to encourage you to see them because you could see them on my website. And I think it'll profoundly change your life a great, greatly. Gordon Clay and Daniel and people all, of, and probably most of the people you have there have already seen those films. Uh, and uh, uh, it profoundly changed the direction of the men's movement to look at possibly what was missing that was here. Um, but also along, we deal with sexism that's also in the film in Last Chance for Eden. And we also deal with uh, uh, gay issues that are also in Color of Fear. Uh, and then also uh, the issues of trauma that are there in there, um, childhood trauma and then uh, the trauma of racism and sexism. Are the, uh, the speakers are mainly students, like college student age? The only one is college students are uh, if these halls could talk. Um, all the other students are uh, adults. I mean, I mean the, the college students are adults too, but they're all, those are all graduate students are undergrad. Um, and they're all, all around the country, different schools. There are about 11 different schools. And then uh, the other ones are all around the country too. And they're people of color, uh, Muslims, uh, First Nation people. Uh, and so in almost all the films, it's, it's most of the time, it's, it's two of every group. So color of fear, it's only two whites, two blacks, two Latinos, two Asian. So I try not to make it a minority but to really have them to be equal when they're speaking. So they're profound, they're, they're revolutionary. They've, some people have called The Color of Fear perhaps the best film in the 21st century on diversity, and there's never been another one like it. And it really, what you saw there was real time, and it lasted for two and a half days, all my films are, but they're all real you know, dialogue. Nothing is, is scripted at all. And it's all fancy. Hmm. And then, you said that you didn't do another video after the death of Mark Williamson, who was in one of the videos. Uh, Mark, Mark Thompson. Thompson. And, yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't hear about him because he was, it was shocking. He was burned alive in the trunk of his car. And it's rumored that the Ku Klux Klan had been uh, uh, really going after him during the day because he was walking through the town with his white girlfriend. And then hours later, he was um, burned alive. And in Chico, it wasn't the first time someone was burned alive in, in the car. It was the third time, wow. but the police made no connection. And then along with that, they did not cordon the area off for two weeks. So it says a lot. And uh, 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 there's a whole story around him. I guess you got to see some of it in, in, in the uh, uh, documentary that was done with him. Uh, but yeah, so, and oh, but I was so devastated you can imagine and because uh, mark and i uh, actually connected the night before he was at my premiere and then the next day he was murdered and uh um we he stayed overnight with all remember, the other cast and we just had this great conversation and so it was emotionally devastating and so i decided that it was my last film and i was going to do this national dialogue on race but it ended up more the violence was going on in the country so i up towards blacks so i started doing more workshops, talking about those issues. And of course, the Me Too and everything. So it really, um, uh, day, would mean a lot to me if you saw if these halls could talk in color.
country when they saw this film, why it was so profound. Mm. Um, last question is, you have a son, do you have other children as well? And are they, you finding that their lives are easier, more open, free than yours? No, I found that my life was more open. Um, my son is livid and scared as a Guatemalan child being adopted there. Uh, uh, he's really afraid for the future for himself. He was arrested for, uh, they threw him up against the car. Um, they were not sure about his headlights in daylight, which is exactly what happened to me when I was arrested for headlights that didn't work in daylight. Isn't amazing about that? And he was thrown up against the car. He was in, in solitary for two months and he went crazy. And so I have a lot of anguish toward the police for that. But along with that is that he has experienced his racism and I think it affected him when he went to college and it's why he dropped out as he talked about an incident that occurred there. And it was really amazing to me when I, I worked with the, with the faculty at SF State. And what I shared was like the story that happened to him, okay, in the class. And I said, now we're almost finishing the workshop. And what I noticed is that none of you seem to be curious and wanting to ask me later on who the teacher was so you could work with that teacher. And just to let you know, is that when we finished the workshop, after I said that, no one ever asked me. Three and a half months later, no one still ever asked me who that teacher was. And it was only the film teacher who was Latino called my son to say, I'm so sorry what happened to you. Is there any way I can get you to come back? But my son said, it's too late. My father said, why didn't any of you call me to find out who it was? I was so angry and so hurt. And so, uh, no, because my son doesn't have, we had Martin Luther King. We had Muhammad Ali. We had Malcolm X. We had the civil rights movement. What do we have today? What leader that you look at? So my son doesn't have an outlet. He uh, uh, doesn't have much faith in the law enforcement, in education, our educators. Uh, he's a filmmaker and he works with little kids. And uh, uh, as a teacher's aide and as a counselor. But no, I, I, I think that uh, uh, this generation uh, the internet is both a blessing and a curse because now they're bombarded with all these lies and, and uh, just horrible things that polarize people. And so it's hard for them to discern what's wrong and what's right. But he does see himself as a Latino being, you know, just racialized daily and uh, in this country. So no, it's not a, not a good time. And he sees how much work I do and when I talk about these issues, et cetera. So I think for anybody who thinks that it's, 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 it's a generation that's full of hope, uh, it's, it's got to be a white person, <laughs> but not necessarily for people of color. Well, the climate disaster, I don't think anybody of any color is, isn't discouraged by that. Well, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of whites who don't believe it even exists. <laughs> there's still a lot of and I have a lot of folks of color friends who don't believe climate change is really happening well, then, so, not even with the fires and the tornadoes and the hurricanes amazing and, and you know just I guess it was three weeks ago you won't believe this a Republican said uh, for, we're going to put it on our agenda 
you know, to, to talk about. And he says, and I don't know why people don't think that we, that we care about the environment. And I was thinking, oh, it's our fault. <laughs> we don't think that you care about the environment. When did I ever think that you cared? You cared more about business. But now that your business is threatened by the climate, now you're going to pay attention. But the question is, how much are you going to be willing to do about it? And do you give a damn? When I have people tell me that it doesn't exist, what I often say to them is, I said, you're getting older. And, you're, I, and I know you love your grandchildren. Can you afford to be wrong? Yeah. If you really care about them, you really want them to live where it's three to, two to three times worse, the climate. And if you're thinking today that we may have to uh, turn off the electricity for a couple hours, or we might have water shortages, imagine if it was twice or three times worse, then ask yourself, could you have done something? And this generation will ask you, what did you do, dad? What'd you do, mom? When you had a chance to help, what did you do? This bill that's going through Congress, I think, is really important. The expanded yeah. infrastructure bill. We'll see. Yeah, well, I'm almost sure the Republicans will try every imaginable way because it's more political than it is to help people. Oh, yeah, they are. My, my, my joke about that I wish the Democrats would use this one is that the Democrats have um, uh, Obamacare, in other words, I care. The Republicans have, I don't care. Well, did you see Melania Trump's, the jacket she wore when she went to the border? I don't care. I mean, it was spelled out. Yeah, I think it, I think that said really what she was thinking. And they said, you know, a lot of the, the new testimonies coming out that she really didn't care or was concerned about the rioters at the Capitol. So I guess that says a lot. And, you know, and so for me right now, you know, when you think about it, we have all this virus and all this Delta and everything. I don't remember the president, the former president saying anything like, we really got to be careful. This is really horrible and watch out. I'm really concerned about the health of this country. It's all about himself and the election, which really hopefully would tell some people something that I guess it's still all about Donald, you know, yeah. He, he's saying lately, he says, I got the shot. It's a good thing, but he says it very gently and they boo him and he kind of retreats. Exactly. In other words, very little conviction. Yeah. You know, and, and it just it just it's always his kind of sarcastic, you know, humor and satire. He likes it. Just, there's this guy that's that just got uh, accepted onto the Saturday Night Live, and he does an absolute impression of Donald Trump's voice. But what he puts into his his uh, skit is the way he's so dismissive and sarcastic. Uh, and so he does this about different topics, and you catch the subtlety to which he trivializes important issues. And I think it's so true. Anyway, um, before we close, I wanted to read you something, just, it's a, just two paragraphs, okay? Sure. Something that uh, I wrote. Um, well, while you're looking, when is your next book, your biography coming out? Oh, it's coming out uh, hopefully this year. Great. Yeah, I have actually four books coming out this year. Well, um, what are they? Tell us. Well, well, one is is another a manual, the Art of Mind Facilitation Two, and another one is uh, my philosophy around uh, diversity issues. Uh, excuse me, my, my philosophy around mindfulness. And so I wrote what my philosophy is, and then the last one is going to be a. Uh, I'm doing a whole unit uh, on 
teaching people the art of mindfulness in therapy. So the intersection of mindfulness and group therapy and group process. And so uh, nowadays think of mindfulness with John Kabat-Zinn and meditating, focusing on your environment. Do you have a different definition of mindfulness? Yeah, I like to make it more practical <laughs> and, and, and uh, uh, less about yourself. And it's about, uh, it, it permeates and you get to see in the book of the art of mindful facilitation is how it enters into facilitation, business, corporations, government agencies, therapy, uh, social work, how you could use the, the art of mindful facilitation, therapy, counseling techniques. And it also enters into the way that you teach. So it's a very, it's much more practical and real. And I, and, and I remember it once UC, uh, UCLA wanted to sue me for using the word mindfulness. And so, uh, because they said they invented it. And so I said, well, let me see, what year did you start using? And they told me, and I said, well, I used it eight years before, but I took it from Thich Nhat Hanh. So I don't know whether I should tell Thich Nhat Hanh to sue you or I should sue you. And then they didn't say a word. <laughs> but how they wanted to take the word that they had heard from someone else and then claim it was around America asking but anyway this is what um, I believe that we all tested maybe in the way we planned or wanted but when the time comes we will either act with courage and goodness or with fear and silence for each of us deep down deep for each of us deep down knows what is right and what is wrong. And it is at that moment when we are tested that our history is written. To be remembered or to be looked back on with regret it is a choice that we each must make for ourselves and for those not yet born. For each decision we make in life affects everything and everyone from that moment on. Each time we do not speak up, someone always pays a price for our silence. And that same price is also exacted on who we become and who we do not. So you see, it is where the road ends that our path begins. Terrific. What book is that from? Oh, that's that's going to be my book called uh, "Where the Path, Where the Road Ends, the Path Begins," and that is um, seventy-two um, uh, pieces that I wrote. Uh, over a span of 30 years, uh, some of the best pieces I wrote on diversity issues facing this country. And so once a month for 35 years, I wrote the issues and, and my thoughts on them from a Buddhist and Eastern approach. And so I, I picked out some of the best ones. Fantastic. This is hackney, but thank you for all the work, the good oh, work that you do. Thank, thank you. you. It's um, an honor to meet you too, Gail. And I heard you wrote 20 books. At least that was what you said on your thing there. That must be quite an accomplishment. Um, okay. I want to get out of this meeting. I think it should end. <laughs> and I'll put the uh, end to my recording. Hopefully it got recorded. I think it did. Yes, it did. Yeah. Well, okay. mine's still recording. But anyway, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. It was delightful. Okay. Thank you, Gail. Take we'll care. Bye-bye.